you know what? So first and foremost, she was such a happy person. So it was, it was a real loving house. Like for someone who never had parents, I sometimes think about like, like every time we come home from school, she'd hug you like she'd never see you again. Sorry, and that's my probably my biggest memory of her. Letters to the Gay Barn Show, a handwritten history of Ireland, is the subtitle of Dear Gay, a recently published collection of items featured over 25 years on Gay's programme on RT Radio 1. Compiled by his daughter Susie, one chapter is about Christine Buckley, who endured and survived a horrific childhood at St. Vincent's Industrial School in Goldenbridge in Dublin. With me now for this Insights podcast is Christine's son, Connor Buckley, businessman, social entrepreneur and equality campaigner. Connor Buckley, nice to meet you. Great to have you on the podcast. For people who don't know or who maybe don't remember or who haven't heard, because it's, it's, it's over three decades ago since your mom, Christine, told her story first on the Gay Byrne Show and then was the subject of that award-winning, internationally award-winning programme, Dear Daughter, a film version by Louis Lenton. Tell me about Christine Buckley. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, so Christine was an activist and a campaigner. I think she was an activist before the word activist was even known. Like for, as a person, Ira obviously remembers being a hugely loving and happy person. But obviously, her childhood would have been tortured in a way. That's the only best way to put it. She grew up. Uh, she was born in nineteen forty six. She was in Golden Bridge, an orphanage in Inchicore, and uh, throughout her uh, childhood up to the age of eighteen, she would have like over 100,000 other children in different state-run institutions around Ireland would have endured numerous beatings, physical, mental and sexual abuse. So her life could have been blighted, but she was able to turn her, I guess, tragic childhood into something positive when she exposed the abuses, as you mentioned, um, in 1992 on The Gay Brown Show. Her parents, because that the, the the fact that her father was from another country and her mother had been previously married, that actually affected the story and affected her life. Yeah, so she was told that her mum was a black, I think, prostitute growing up. Her mum was white and she worked in the gaiety. Her dad was a black good for nothing and her dad was a, a medical profession who studied in Trinity with actually Gay Byrne's brother. So... Interesting enough, Gay Byrne's family would have had my granddad over to their house for like Sunday lunch, that type of thing. So you, she was interesting. She was told this narrative all her life. Can you imagine being told that? You've no parents, but you're told you've come from nothing. And she could have let all those negative experiences really shape her life. But she didn't. She was quite ambitious in and her own way. While she was there and quite young, maybe just barely a teenager, if that, she tried to draw public attention to what was going on in Golden Bridge. Yeah, so... I look back in that time and think about how difficult it is. To imagine Sean being ten years of age, and you've you've daughters, and you can can you when you, I think it's tough when you've children. You picture this at the age of ten, she uh, posted a note to the breadman who she had a good relationship with, and she said, "Listen, we are being beaten up every day. This isn't right." So imagine at the age of ten, she knew the difference between right and wrong. Can you please tell the police about this? And the breadman did it what he thought was best, and he brought um, the note to the police and the police did what they thought was best which was give it back to the nuns unfortunately what transpired from that was one of the nuns one day rounded up all the children onto the courtyard and produced this note in, in her hand and she said someone wrote this note and I need you to own up and my mum was petrified at the age of 10 she knew what was in the note so no one did so they started to individually beat the children one by one my mum 
put her hand up and said, that was, that was me, I wrote it. And that day she received a beating that, that meant that she had over 100 stitches in her leg. So they split her leg open. And previously she'd, they'd poured boiling water over her leg. So you can imagine the fear in her and also among her, her colleagues in the orphanage. And I think any parents or siblings to support you, how brave she was to do that and stand up for others. But then also to not stop fighting. So by the age of 18, she got out of the orphanage. She was free. So after she left, as part of her counselling and her therapy, she decided that she needed to confront her abuser and ask her abuser for an apology. She wrote a letter to her abuser, Sister Severia. I remembered her name and her face in the front of a paper saying, this is the face of evil. She asked this nun for an apology. And the nun wrote back a letter with lots more abuse, verbal and, and racist abuse. So it's only then when my mum decided to go on the Gay Burn show and say, I need to publicly put this out and that's actually a psychological phenomenon called calling in and calling out calling in is when you give the person the abuser an opportunity to apologise in private so they you know you're not going to shame them and and if they don't then of course it can lead to calling out which is what happened Was there something of a regime change coming up to the time she left Golden Bridge that conditions improved because there was a change of management. Absolutely, Sean. I think that's really important to point that out, to be honest with you, because there was an amazing nun in there. And it shows you when you have someone that really believes in you, how life can change. That nun did believe my mum and it did help her to spur her on to go into secondary school because not many people from the orphanage went on to secondary school and she subsequently went on to become a nurse. And again, it was that belief and that regime change. And my mum would always say that. She would say, look, Yes, of course, that one nun was terrible, but there's lots of good nuns. And she subsequently put me into a Catholic school. And, you know, she never stopped me from going to mass or anything like that. So she never held it against the entire Catholic church, you know. Um, and yeah, she became a nurse. I think she qualified in Drogheda, or at least that's where she did her, her training. Along the way, she decided as well to make contact with her parents. Now, she had had, as a, as a, a very young child, some contact, even though she didn't know they were her parents at the time. And that stopped quite abruptly. But then she went trying to pick up the traces as an adult. Yeah, she always had a memory of her dad visiting her. And I think that's quite powerful because she, later on in life, she still had the connection with her dad. She definitely felt the warmth from her dad. Now, my sister, Kleena, she's an amazing kind of historian. She knows exactly word for word in the details. But there was some confusion that when her dad went to visit her when she was in the orphanage as a child, she, he brought a lady with her. But that lady was actually his landlord. It wasn't my mum. So my mum actually doesn't have any memories of her real mum. And she always held it against her real mum for not signing the papers to, so she could be adopted and have a better life, which happened to a lot of children. So even when she reconciled with her real mum at the age of 40, she could never, I actually think she could never get over the rejection. And you find that with a lot of children who've been adopted, that the rejection and the trauma catches up with them in life because they still can't, especially when they have children of their own. They and she did establish contact with her dad, who was a psychiatrist in, in Nigeria. And he actually came over to Ireland after some prodding, I suppose you'd have to say. <laughs> yeah, so the first time was she went over to Nigeria to find him, to meet him. And she forgot that he was... She told Asher, I'll find him, I'll see him in the airport. But sure, the airport was full of black people. So when she came in, she said, oh my God, how am I going to spot this man? Do you, you know, there's so many black people here. And she went, with, she brought a white friend with her, Mary Woods. And she noticed this man who actually had the same walk as me. And she said, he had the same bum, the same walk as Connor. So I said, that must be him. So he put her up in a, in a kind of a crap B&B. &B. And my mum said, hold on a second here. 
you've left me for 40 years. You expect me not to stay in your house. You know, I need a big house. He was, you know, he's very wealthy. She said, absolutely not. You left me for 40 years. I'll be staying in the same house as you. So they got on great, which was, which was brilliant. And then subsequently he came back over and they were on the Late Late Show together. They were able to create some type of bond and there's some brilliant photos of them together. But at the same time, again, she would have, like she damn she would have been frustrated by him as well and did you get to meet him then as your granddad yeah he brought over Nigerian clothes and there's a great photo of all of us my brother Dara my sister Kleena and my dad all wearing the Nigerian clothes and my, dad, my dad's the widest man around so it looks quite funny with him with the Nigerian clothes on but it was it was great to meet him and he, he took a real interest in, in our family as well Growing up then as the the son of Christine Buckley, how was that childhood affected by all that she had been been through, all she had endured, good and bad? You know what? So first and foremost, she was such a happy person. So it was was a real loving house. Like for someone who never had parents, I sometimes think about like, like every time we come home from school, she'd hug you like she'd never see you again. Sorry. And... That's my probably my biggest memory of her. And you would have, I suppose, you know, as a lot of parents do, they say, God, if I was getting that food when I was your age, uh, I'd have been glad of it, you know. Yeah, so she she would have said, like, if we didn't eat our dinner, if we didn't, like, she used to eat bread that was full of mould and she'd just take the little bits off it. And we'd be like, oh, mum, that's disgusting, a hard cheese. She said, I would have killed for that food when I was in the orphanage. So it was a great way to show probably spoiled children that you know you should be grateful for what you have like I remember at Christmas time one year there was lots of people from her centre over and I remember thinking why, why can't we just have Christmas on our own just our family and she'd say to me Connor, you understand these people don't have a family they don't have a home and again it's a great learning for a child to see that there's another side to life you know and not to be so self-entitled um, so those was, was constant reminders she kind of treated us like adults she didn't sugarcoat us like when I said to her one day what happened to your leg why is there such a scar in your leg and she told me exactly what happened so I always and if you used to stay I used to stay up till like 3am talking to her about her life and she'd never um, she'd never hold back from the truth and I thought it was a good learning. The other thing is because of being because of being somebody of mixed heritage or mixed race, you yourself would have experienced some some abuse as a child. Now, how did you and she deal with that? Yeah. So for again, first and foremost, she would have always dealt with it straight away. And I think it's a good lesson again in life. So, for example, I remember Sean of the time when my brother was. One of the teachers slagged him about being, a black, they were talking about black and tans in history. And he made a reference to my brothers being, ah, that must be your friends, Dara. And on the way home from school, Dara kind of mentioned it to me in the back of the car. My mum pulled the car over and, and said, what happened? And she's, and he said, oh, one of the teachers slagged, we were talking about black and tans. He goes, that must be your friends. And my mum, I remember it was so well because we were starving. It was, you know, the traffic, it was late. And she U-turned the car straight away, went ba- straight back down to that teacher. And she had to head off him because she'd never let something, she could have let that slide. She could have said, oh, well, Dara, you know, he didn't mean it like that. It was just a joke, which you hear a lot. She absolutely not. She had zero tolerance for that type of, <clears throat> that type of information. And from a young child, I remember a boy saying, making a racist remark to me, and I must have been around six or seven. And I said it to my mum and she got straight in the car and called up to the parents. Now, I, he was a friend of mine. So I was like, oh, please don't say it to him. She was like, I won't say it to him. It has to come, he heard that word from his parents. So she went straight up to the parents 
and she really believed in education. So she went straight up to the parents and she wouldn't have had the head off them. She would have said, listen, just so you're aware, your son made this comment and he must have heard it from someone. And it's just so I want you to understand it's really offensive and he shouldn't use that type of wording. She really believed in the power of education and the power of empathy as well, Sean, you know. That zero tolerance, I think, is, is a, again, it's a great life lesson. She never looked for conflict, but she just wouldn't tolerate it. Presumably then that must have affected the way you would have dealt with in your own life and childhood and adolescence, dealing maybe in the street or on a football pitch with, with racial abuse. Yeah, I remember only three years ago, Sean, and you think about that, you think, oh, what, three years ago, like that's just around a corner. I was in a pub in town, a really nice pub in town, and um, we were watching a rugby match and I was washing my hands in the bathroom. I was talking to this guy about the match and the guy turned around and said, see you later, N-word to me. I don't know where. And I couldn't believe it. So my first, my first reaction was like, did he actually say that word? Because you hope he didn't. And I said, so I always say, sorry, what did you say? And he goes, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it like that. I'm so sorry. And I, and I just said to him, and I pulled him back. I'm not an aggressive person. I pulled him back. I go, do you have any idea? Do you have any idea? how insulting and upsetting that word is. Like, I, I can't say it out loud. And he said, oh, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it like that. This is 3 p.m. the day. So I went over to my friends and I said it to them. I said, you know what? We need to go over to that group. They seem like a nice group of people. So I don't encourage you to approach every group and take them on. We need to say it to, the, to his friends because he might remember saying this tomorrow and he needs to, his friends need to know what he said and my friends were like ah don't worry about it like I'm sure you, you sound like you, you handle it really well or whatever but ultimately we should have done that you know we should have gone over my group should have supported me and gone over and said look what you said to my friend there was out of line it's forgotten about now but I want you to remember that you shouldn't say that so I think you know that was only three years ago and you know count down to like 30 years ago or 35 years ago I remember being on a football pitch and um, we were playing against a team and this guy kept saying the n-word to me non-stop and I was about 12 years of age and uh, it was a big match. It was an All-Ireland Cup match and I was actually bawling on the pitch. Never before has that happened. I remember thinking, like, who's going to step in here? You know, and I just hope to God that if that was to happen now, a referee, a coach on either team would step in. Maybe the players might step in and that, would never, that wouldn't happen. Well, the chances are the team would be taken off the pitch. You'd love, yeah. That's what you'd love to see. You'd absolutely love to see. And this guy really, this guy really went for it. And uh, I, you know, it's interesting, Sean. But it ended well that particular match, didn't it? It ended, yeah, it ended well because I, I remember weirdly enough, like praying during the game, and I remember scoring the winner. And I remember thinking that was God's way of, of teaching that boy, which is a bit like, it sounds a bit cheesy, a bit Roy the Rovers, because I didn't score many goals. I, but I remember thinking that's how it balanced up. But when you were a young fella, uh, the chances are, if I have my dates anyway half right, that one of the great Irish football heroes was Paul McGrath. Oh, jeez, don't get me started on Paul. Like, I adore him. And again, he came from a similar background to my mum. Sorry, and I think about how tough his childhood must have been. Because in a different way, his mum was around, but she didn't, she, she used to visit him and she didn't take him out of the orphanage. So in a different way, he had a, he had a, he had a really difficult childhood as well. My mum got to meet him and uh, she just loved him like a brother. And Paul, he wears some of our clothing, our human collective clothing. And, and we've had some incredible celebrities wear our clothing, like international superstars. But still, Paul McGrath is probably probably the, the best person to wear our clothing because he means so much to me. Yeah, we'll, like, we'll come along and in a few minutes we'll talk about that enterprise. Um, but just, like, I, I, it's hard to think of any Irish sports person who is more loved 
and more admired and more respected than Paul McGrath. Yeah, you're you're going to get me crying again, Sean, here. So the, Paul, like when I grew up, there's no one that looked like me. And obviously we heard those negative words. So to see this player and the ooh, ah, Paul McGrath chant, he made me so proud of the colour of my skin. 88 European Championships, 1990, 94. He was just such an idol. And I genuinely think we got an easier time in school because Paul was there as an icon. And I hope he knows the impact he made. Because he's such a humble man. Um, I hope he knows the impact he made for so many people during that generation. Because I've talked to so many black people in the 80s and 90s and he was their ultimate idol. And and you can actually trace a better atmosphere in your classroom to the fact that he was so prominent in Irish football at the time and such a big star. Absolutely, because in that in the schoolyard, everyone was someone, some player. If you think of it, like so, you could have been anyone from Paul Gascoigne to Maradona to Baggio during that period, and I could be Paul McGrath. I could be someone who was an absolute legend. My affection for him and I think what he did for a lot of people and my brother, it definitely coincided with the popularity side of things. I was mad about soccer. So yeah, he was he was an absolute icon. And I think, you know what, Phil Babb and Terry Field and those lads coming through was brilliant. So it's the first time you're really proud of your skin because no one, you never saw anyone that looked like us. I mean, yeah. you heard about Phil Linnett, but you might not have seen him. You know, so to see someone like that, I mean, seeing an Afro on TV, seeing an like that was a, that was brilliant. Like we big afros going around the schoolyard, and it was great to see. I remember that time to see him live and to be a hero and to be one of the best players. You know, so it was a, it was a special period. I have a huge affection for him still. Tell me about the trocra boxes. If you think of the symbolism in the eighties of you were given trocra boxes in school, and a lot of those children were obviously starved and malnourished and. That was the image you had of a black person. So I was really embarrassed when those trocar boxes were passed around the school. And you got, oh, they must be your mates or they must be your family. Like how, like, you know, and of course in America, one of the popular TV shows at the time was Cops. And all you saw was black people being arrested. I mean, that was a strategic decision, Sean, by the government to show black people. They wanted to increase the revenue in prisons and the, the prison population in America trebled. It went to 2.5 million from 500,000 people or quadrupled in a couple of years. So this was the imagery we got. That's why seeing Paul McGraw was so special because that, that was the other narrative I was shown. It was trocra, it was poor, it was starved. So, so to see Paul McGraw was so special for me. In the 90s, you saw some good American TV shows coming out, like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It was good to see, again, black people presented in a better light. But that image really stuck with me all through my early years. So that's why, I mean, even my mum collecting me from school could be embarrassing because people could say things. She came in, she rocked in her big afro. I was way happier. My dad, white man, coming in collecting me, you know, especially bringing me to football matches in tough areas in Dublin, having my dad there. You know, he's incredibly supportive. He brought me to every football match. You know, I, I wanted him there. I didn't want my mum because, again, the name calling would have been prevalent. But at the same time, what I loved about my mum so much was she was so proud. She never hid away from who she was. You know, she used to wear bright coloured clothing. She was so proud. And that gave me so much self-belief because some of my friends, Sean, were told growing up, just so you know, you look different. You're going to have to stay out of trouble. You might get picked on by the police. You might get this. You might get that. My mum never, ever said your skin colour is going to be a barrier to you get a, getting a job. You can achieve anything you want. And that is an incredible message to send to a child and to believe, to believe in your children as well. 
There was another period, a long enough period in your life, Connor, that um, where you worked and you would have come across a lot of celebrities yourself. You worked in the nightclub business. You were part of a fairly big uh, business enterprise and a successful one. Um, t- tell me about that time. Yeah, everyone's fascinated to at that time because, and you know what's really interesting, the relationships I forged back then, even though I'm working in a completely different industry, still really support me. And I'm really interested in that idea that reciprocity so we looked after a lot of people people had a great times. it coincided with the rugby team doing really well and people still support me because probably because I looked after them back then you know so um, there was Crystal which was our start uh, no do you know what Bondi Beach and Slorgan was our start no Crystal in this case is not cut glass it's a nightclub right yeah, yeah exactly so we started off at a venue called Bondi Beach me and one of my best friends Brian O'Malley and that was great fun um, sorry I started doing events in UCD that was my first time and I loved it. Great fun, because a bit like my mum, I just loved people, being around people. And um, we had great times, we had great nights. I'm a bit of a night owl, so it suited me. It's a, it's a tough industry, but it's a fun industry too. You got to meet your friends that were going out. I met my wife, my amazing wife, Lauren, in one, in one of the nightclubs. So I did that for 15 years in the club. So I had a great time in Crystal. I had a great time in Press Up for 10 years as well. And I learned a lot from it. It was, you know, there were brilliant times. And although they're different industries, a lot of the people and the friendships I made there, they're still the people that would buy the clothes, you know, because they want to support me. The nightclub scene, I mean, it was a time when you were working at, I think, you know, the Celtic Tiger, you would have seen a lot of extravagance and maybe, you know, uh, waste of money and, and, and people just, you know, maybe losing the run of themselves as well as maybe having a good time. Yeah, you're right. There was a time when there was that keeping up with the Joneses, you know, like I look back at the, it was a lot of fun, but like, you know, people were, I could never understand people buying champagne and this type of stuff. And also, I think, and I, I was probably a little bit naive to this at the time. You know, people were doing drugs, a lot of drugs at the time. You know, people would come up and they'd be like, do not know who I am and all this type of stuff. I, I've met those people since, some of those people, and they're really good people. But just at that period, they got a bit caught up with themselves, you know. And I, I believe champagne sales have never gone back to the levels that they were. You know, that was a period in time. There was just, I guess, excessiveness. And I mean, what kind of money would people... Splash yeah, out yeah on I always a, on remember like certain people coming in, like celebrities coming in, spending like two grand on champagne, like the six glasses of, you get six glasses of a bottle of champagne for 250 euro. I could never understand that, you know, and it's, a, I know it's still, it's still very much alive in Vegas, and Miami, but in Ireland, it, it probably isn't seen as, I don't think it's seen as a, as, as aspirational as it was, you know. I remember like people would come over from the UK and America and they'd ask me like, where can I get drugs? And we just, myself and my, my business partner, mate Brian, we just didn't have that knowledge or that information you know we used to say to them oh, I have no idea and they used to get really angry you know because I think club promoters in other countries would have that kind of type of information so yeah it was it was a great it was great fun I mean I was working with one of my best friends which was brilliant and we always kept our feet really on the ground and then you you spent was it 10 years as head of sales and business development at Press Up now that's a a, <clears> a business run I think led by a guy called Paddy McKillen uh, Paddy McKillen Jr and there's a lot of enterprises pubs hotels around town they've had a bit of a setback let people go lately so what was it like working in that I have a real soft spot for Paddy McKillen I really do you know yesterday I was chatting to him and you know I just I've Real, of a real grow for him and what we achieved in such a short space of time was phenomenal I mean there's a great senior group there and, and those people like we worked so hard to, to get the group you know I, I remember the time when the Dean Hotel opened up the commitment from the senior team and from everyone was phenomenal so um, I, I love seeing it 
I love sit hearing stories about it. Like I was in one of the venues last week, one of the new venues. I think his eye for detail, his attention to detail is phenomenal. I think his vision is incredible as well. And yeah, I, I love my period there, but I want just wanted to do something that had a, I guess, follow my mum's legacy with a bit more of a, a purpose to it. So, round about, I think it was a three years ago, Connor, you decided to leave Press Up and I'm sure you must have been very well rewarded and uh, got a lot of uh, fun and satisfaction with that. But tell me about the new venture. I, I suppose it's a social enterprise, but it's a business as well. I, w- I wanted to do something that had, I think, do you know what? The wrong date that stays, stays stands out in my mind, Sean, is the 25th of May, 2020, George Floyd was murdered and I was working in press up and I just rang my brother and we were both really upset by it. And I decided then that I wanted to do something that worked with charities, but also gave something back. Just to remind people, George Floyd was, he was held down for over eight minutes by a policeman, Derek Chauvin, in Minneapolis. And he was gasping for air. He died. Now Chauvin is in jail for that. Uh, has survived, a, a, I think, a, a stabbing effort uh, oh. on, on his life um, in recent times. But it was a, a big moment in US interrelations history and development. Yeah, I, I, I was... And like, around the world, Yeah, indeed. it was. It was probably the first time, Sean, where the whole world came together and actually showed empathy for the black community. And I went to one or two marches and I, like, I saw you know, 70, 80% white people, which is brilliant to see and I still see like that support from the white community which I think needs to happen in order for change to happen but I was so it was the first time the world came together and showed empathy but the black community were really really mourning his loss and my brother in particular we spoke a lot about it and I felt like I wanted to do something I actually just ended up getting to this to this rabbit hole of understanding why people hate why does discrimination exist? And I actually personally really dislike the term mixed race because I think it divides people up. I like mixed heritage, mixed culture. And the equal sign was a symbol that we created based on working with a social psychologist and the idea that would, if we could get people just to make one small change, like wearing something that represents equality, well, then they'd make bigger changes in the future. And those changes can lead from anything to coming to a march, to watching a documentary on TV, reading an article, maybe listening to this podcast, and hopefully that will make bigger future changes in the future, which again might be standing up for someone in work who, when someone says something sexist or racist or homophobic. So these were all little steps that will lead to bigger changes. It's a really simple logo. It's a bit like the you know, the whoosh that Nike use. Yeah. Uh, and and they, all of these big brands, they generally get it down to something really simple and yours is the equal sign as in two plus two equals four. Yeah, yeah we get incredible, we get incredible compliments about that and we'd like to think that everyone can wear it and talk about it. So like Amy Huberman on the weekend, she's an amazing lady, so kind, um, she buys her clothes and she put it up and she talks about the equality message. So it's, it's an international symbol as well. You know, it doesn't matter what country you're in, you know what that stands for. So that was really important to us. And we've, we, you know, we've shipped all over the world to countries all over the world, to companies all over the world. We wanted it to be very digestible, but we know we want to come out with stronger messing in the future as well, Sean. This is something, this is a start for us and it's something that we want everyone to feel comfortable with, but then we want people to wear what they believe. So it's a, it's a range of clothes that you that you sell. I mean, people can, can buy it, I think, in Dublin, you have a place in St. Stephen's Green Shopping Centre and you're in Arnott's and we'll come back and talk about Arnott's in a few minutes. You're wearing a, a hoodie and it looks, on, a, on this cold day, <laughs> it looks very cosy for moving around yeah, the town. Yeah, I, I cycled in today and I said, what can I wear? And the Sherpa is, yeah, it's super cosy. And that's one of the other things. We wanted people to be comfortable. So where is it made? So we make ours in Portugal, Turkey, Poland, 
Bangladesh and India. And we do it in different countries because certain countries can make products better than others. And I, I, do you insist that the workers who make the garments in those countries that you name, that they have good terms and conditions or is that beyond your sphere of influence? Yeah, do you know what? We, we did travel to a factory in Poland really importantly to see, to meet the workers um, and to see the factory because sometimes you don't know what's happening on the other side or we ask for imagery and when imagery can be doctored so we're always careful about that. But that's what we've got a third party supplier who ensures that and again, it brings a premium to it because they have to certify that, you know, and that makes it difficult, you know, to bring in a third party, it brings up the cost. But that's, that's again, it's really important to us. What kind of plans <clears throat> then have you for developing Human Collective? So we want to produce clothing, again, that makes people feel comfortable, but also has str- stronger messaging in it. So people will, again, get the message across. We've seen in recent times that, and I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime, the rioting and the hate and discrimination does exist in Ireland, unfortunately. And I know it's a very, very it's a small group of people, but the importance more than ever to show that we we stand against that, that we support equality, that we support and we welcome these incredible people from different heritages, different cultures, because that could be us. I mean, some of these people have lost their homes and they've had to come. And isn't it great that we support them? And I think more than ever, that message has to be put out there. Do you see Human Collective having stores, you know, on high streets, be it, you know, in the UK or around the world? Or will it be all just done through social media or mail orders or through Amazon or whatever your sales? We, yeah, we want, we definitely want to be all over the world. And we're actually talking to an international, really well-known international supplier who are in over 50 countries and have over 400 stores. And our whole idea to work with them is, and they've been really engaging, which in fairness to them, we're not a big brand. You know, they could be, they've been giving us lots of time. And the reason is our whole mission is to make, is to spread a message of equality and end discrimination. That's our mission. And open people's minds to biases. So we do a lot of talks about unconscious bias. And the clothing is a great way to do that. Because we think about it, it's our most visible asset, you know, besides, you know, people wear tattoos on their, on their arms and their, their body. Well, we're asking people to wear what they believe, wear what you what you believe and open up that conversation. For example, there's a leading drinks company who are talking about putting our clothing in pubs all over Ireland. And the reason for that is, again, a lot of discrimination, hate happens when people have alcohol on them and they say things that aren't right or whatever it is. So if we can influence them by having our clothing and open up that conversation, that's really important. So we would like to be in, yeah, I think it's an international message. It has to be in all over the world. I'm a bit like a one step at a time, if I'm honest with you. You know, I don't like getting ahead of myself, but that's ultimately where we want to be. And we want, you know what's amazing, Sean? Two days ago, a woman sent me a link and said, I think what you're doing is absolutely incredible. You've changed my family because we've family members who are part of the LGBTQ plus community. We've had so much, so many incredible stories. They say, when you wear our clothes, it feels like a safe space. My son never takes off his pride hat, no matter where he goes. So first of all, she sent me this message. Then she rang me and she was emotional on the phone. And she followed up with an, an email going, here's a link to where you can buy badges, really premium badges with the equal sign. Because I noticed you went to a black tie event and you couldn't wear human collective to it, but you could still wear the badge. And that message needs to be put everywhere. And we know there's a bit of, if you have time, Sean, can I explain a little bit of the, the science behind it, the behavioral science? So we know that when people make a small commitment, they're likely to make a bigger commitment in the future. So what that is, I'm going to tell you a little story about something completely off the point. They did a study in America. These particular researchers are really passionate about how can we make people drive safely in neighbourhoods. So they went to a number of different houses in a neighbourhood and they said, would you mind erecting a sign in your driveway saying drive safely? And the numbers are really low. 
because no one wanted to put an ugly sign in their driveway saying drive safely. And you can imagine why. If someone approached you, Sean, said, look, I know, do you believe in drive safely? You say, yeah. How about you stick this big sign in? You, would, you mightn't agree to it. They went to a similar neighbourhood down the road. They said, would you mind putting a small postcard in your window saying drive safely? And the numbers were much higher. So 90% of people agreed to do it. Why was that? Well, we know because a small postcard and a big sign is a massive difference. They went back to that neighbourhood, agreed to put the small postcard in the window. And they said, now that you've put a small postcard in your window saying drive safely, would you mind erecting this sign in your driveway? They expected everyone to say no again. Again, it's a big, ugly sign. But the numbers went up over 400%. So why did they? Because they'd already made a small commitment to driving safely. So they're more likely to make a bigger commitment in the future, which this study showed. So we know that if people can make a small commitment, they're more likely to make a bigger commitment in the future. Now, that doesn't mean having to buy our clothing, but it's about standing up for people, maybe in the work or home. We know, we've had messages from people who've said, look, my father-in-law says things that are inappropriate at Christmas time, and I've had to have a quiet word with him. Thank you, I wouldn't have said that if I hadn't come to one of your talks. We've had people that said certain things about their phone family, and they said, look, We've given him the human collective cloud and we've explained the story behind it and it's changed his mindset. We can't force change on people. You know, I can't talk to those riders and say, you cannot talk to, about immigrants like that, but we can make subtle changes to their life. We know that some of those people, that if they engage with different communities, some of those people who rioted, if they just engage, if they had a black friend or a friend from the LGBTQ plus community or maybe one of their members of, of their family were gay, that they are more likely to stand up for them. Of course they are because they're, they've already made a commitment by supporting a family member and we've seen that throughout history and you'll know from chatting to friends and family that they've, if they have a member who's part of a minority community, they're more likely to make a bigger stance. And I, I said to a friend of mine who's, who's stood up for me plenty of times and actually this friend of mine, Brian O'Malley, he kicked someone out of a nightclub who said a racist name to my mum before. He didn't even wait for me to react. He lifted him up and brought him out. Now, I remember saying to Brian, what made you do that? Because, well, Connor, we've been friends since 13. Why wouldn't I? So he's already made a commitment by engaging with me. Really interesting. So this is what we're trying to achieve at Human Collective. It's not going to be overnight because like anything, it takes a long time. But we're trying to subtly influence people. And there's a, there's a bit of behavioural psychology behind it. Got a brilliant guy called Robert Cialdini wrote a book about it, The Science of Influence. He talks about infidelity going down in America in a certain area by getting the the partners, the males in particular, to pray for their wives. So we got them to pray every day and infidelity shot down in this particular area. And it shot down because they wanted to be consistent with their behaviours. Why would they pray for their, their wives and then commit adultery? So, because if they do, they have something called cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is when you behave in a different way to your beliefs and behaviours. So there's a, there's a couple more studies on it. Um, and uh, not for today, but it's, it is fascinating. How do you analyse those uh, violent events, the uh, vandalism, the, te- the thefts, uh, the thuggery that went on recently in Dublin in the aftermath of that knife attack on that unfortunate child at the school in Parnell Square? I mean, do you see it as somehow ideologically driven or do you see it as just plain lawlessness? You're, you know, it's first of all, it's so sad to think of what happened to that, to those children. So that's the first thing. And, I, and it's taken away in a way from the sadness from that because there's been so much talk about it is lawless. It's, 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 it's insane what happened there. Like I, I can't, like it, it looked like it was something from America. I never thought it would happen. But I try and think about, again, the psychology behind that. These people are really unhappy in their lives and they're looking for the other to blame. They're looking for something else to blame. 
And unfortunately, there's certain people who, who've got a, a voice in that community and they're not helping things. I think by raising the temperature and their hate against immigrants. And I would love if those people who are role models, same way Paul McGraw is a positive role model for me, This certain people could be positive role models for that community, but instead they've used their profile to say negative things about the community. And that's the saddest thing for me. So this community, they're disenfranchised, they're unhappy, they're angry, and they need someone to blame. I think those people, in a way, again, my mum, I hear my mum's voice, those poor individuals that are really frustrated and angry, they, they were just taking out their anger. Now, what they did was completely wrong, absolutely wrong. But I'd love to get to the fundamental issues of what's happened in their life. You know, maybe they feel like, like life's let them down, you know. And I know people are probably listening to this going, ah, here, they're thugs and they're gurriers and what they did is disgraceful and they should be locked up. But I'd love to understand more about what's led them to do what they did, those actions, you know, because there's definitely a sadness there about that. No doubt the people who, if you like, began the protest and maybe sent out messages saying, you know, we need to get to town and so forth. They have, you know, a, a belief or a set of beliefs along the lines you've been describing. But there would be others who just lashed, latched onto it just because, you know, they, they get a certain buzz or energy out of creating mayhem. I mean, there's nothing ideological attached to yeah, it. Yeah, you're right. That's the mob mentality. And that's just people just jumping on board and at just reckless and again, they're doing, fortunately, they don't have role models in their life. You'd question, obviously, their beliefs, but that is just absolute recklessness where they want to rob and steal, you know. And, and again, those, the imagery from that, I think all over the world is just shocked that Ireland has that. What did you think when you heard <clears throat> about uh, Arnott's being looted? Because, again, you have a particular association there. This is really sad to say, Sean, because we, we are in Arnott's and Arnott's have been incredibly supportive to Human Collective. I was due to be in there on Saturday. And for the first time ever, I, I was like, I can't go in on Saturday. My wife's like, please don't go in. You've got a family to think about. And I was genuinely in fear of going in, you know, and I was thinking if I have to go in, I'm going to have to really cover my hair. Absolutely. My, I have an afro, you know, I'm going to have to, de- 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 I don't know what the correct phrasing is here, but white myself or de-black myself. Then. Disguise yourself. Disguise myself ultimately, because, you know, you, you, group, you walk into the wrong group of people there and we didn't know what was going to happen. But I was genuinely worried, saying, I need to keep my distance from this, which isn't good, you know. And I had people saying to me, don't go in there. You know, you shouldn't go in there. I know a number of people who weren't working just in that area of town and other parts of town who were probably darker than me and they just didn't go into work. They refused to go into work because they feared for safety. I know a number of people who were going into town and they said they couldn't get taxis. And someone told me 75% of our taxis are people from mixed heritage and mixed culture. So all of a sudden, people can't get, in, get out of town. They're really scared because they can't get out of town. But who, does, who, drives, who drives the taxis? 75%. So they're, they're not going to affect us, you know. And I did have one person say to me, um, you don't let them win. Go into town. And my wife said, well, it's easy for him to say. He's white. She's nothing to worry about. You know, so I will go. I, I have been into town since. I will be down in that area. I will be going down to Arnott's. Of course I will. But at the same time, at that particular period, I was really worried as in the day after and that weekend after, which is really sad to say because all my life, I've never feared like that going around Dublin or Ireland. Do you think that the politicians need to be more active in changing the laws or more, do the Gardaí need to be more heavy handed? What, what What's your view of how that is dealt with from a law and order point of view. Yeah, I think, to be honest, again, I probably think I need to start from a young age with these people. 
those areas in Dublin that probably need more support. There's a great guy in our team, Michael Darren McCauley, brilliant guy, eight on Ireland's with the GAA. That's where he's, that's where he's mostly known from. I mean, what a good person that lad is, and he works with the North Inner City. And I just think they probably need more resources from a young age, you know. They need to see that the police aren't the bad guys as well because there's obviously a bit of a lot of anim animosity towards them. He's doing great work. I know there's lots of people doing great work. But I think you, from an early age, you've got to support these people because some of these people are, are beaten by their background. I actually read that quote from Alex Ferguson about a footballer before, a great footballer who never made it. And he said he was beaten by his background. And some of these people, unfortunately, my my mum used to say it as well. They didn't stand. They don't stand a chance because they don't have that support. So I think the support has to start from an early age. And obviously, no one could have predicted what how it escalated so quickly in Dublin. Like no one could have seen that. And I and I, it does seem like without knowing too much about the details, it does seem like the police aren't as resourced as well as as you know as they should be. But no one could have predicted how quickly it was going to escalate. And the other thing is, I think, Sean, that we're not familiar with is the social media and the WhatsApp groups that are just like ready to explode there. You know, that, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. They, like I, I spoke to a guy on Facebook before and he was saying one of his jobs was to moderate the hate. And he was saying that there's this black hole of these people all over, all over countries, all over the world that are in these groups, online chat rooms, and they can point out individuals or they can point out areas to be and, and people can move, mobilize really, really efficiently, you know, and obviously the guard, need intel. You know, they need to be in these WhatsApp groups or they need to be in there to see these things move very fast, you know, because that escalated to another level. And it's, again, it's just shocking to see and just really sad to see for the first time, I, I, you know, in Dublin, to see something like that happen. It's just shocking. But I'm wondering, we, we started talking about your mother, we talked about you. What do you see as the future for your children? Because again, they're, they're, they're a bit different from what was previously regarded as Irish faces, but that of course is changing too. But how do you see the future like, for your kids? Yeah, interesting, Sean. I think everything I do is for my wife, amazing wife, Lauren. She's incredibly supportive. She's like my business partner, my wife, best friend, and my children. And my mum as well, and my family. You know, I have an amazing dad, Donald, and, and Clean and Dara, but... I think everything I do, I think about them. Now, to be honest with you, Sean, they probably won't be affected as much because and my wife's white, so they're not as, as dark as me. They've got the curls, which I'm so proud of, you know, and my mum would have, it's a pity she's not around because she would have loved them, those curls so much. I named my daughter Chrissy after my mum, Christine Buckley. She's got that fiery temper. She's a real boss and it's great to see and hopefully she'll live on <laughs> through her and the rest of them. But what I'd love for them is is for them to be open-minded and to be embrace other cultures and not to be fearful of them. Because I think when we embrace other cultures, like there's a great company, as we know, Amazon, what they do is when you start an Amazon, they make you go for a coffee with 20 different people throughout the company. They'll pick the different people. So you get to, under, you get to meet someone who's possibly transgender, who's possibly black, whoever it is, Indian, because you may have never engaged with someone and you might have, you, you'll have created stereotypes about those people. Mm. And I think that's really important. For me, I'd love for our children and I think the travelling community get a really hard time in Ireland and some people have never engaged with anyone from the travelling community, but they've got stereotypes about them. So I'd love for my children to be really open-minded about that and, and to be just question their biases. Why do they think about a particular person in a certain way? Because we all have biases. We all have unconscious bias, but just to question them. And I think if we were open-minded about things, we'd understand. Because sometimes when someone says something, especially about the transgender community, I'd say, have you ever spoke to anyone who's transgender? And I'd say, no. 
well, you've no idea the journey they've gone through and how painful it is. Like, I, I, I listened to someone recently and she said, um, what are they going on about? She's like, you're a boy or girl, this type of stuff. And I said, have you ever spoken to anyone from that's transgender? She said, no, have you? I said, yeah, I met an amazing uh, lady and I didn't realise how difficult that journey was. I had no idea. Um, and she told me about the journey for her family as well. There's an empathy there. You know, before we start saying that can't be true or a certain person can't feel like that, you have to be in their shoes. Empathy isn't pitting someone. It's putting yourself in another person's shoes. And until you do that, it's very hard to judge it. Like my mum said to me when I was giving out about people in the house at Christmas time, going, why are these people in the house? She goes, Connor, these people don't have a house. You know, and and um, I just got an image there, Sean, sorry, of uh, I was walking up Georgia Street one day and there was a homeless man in the street and he got up and he started walking after me. And I was actually like, Jesus, what's this? What's what, what's this? Do I start running? And he grabbed me. And all he said was, your mum saved my life. And um, it, it struck me, that story about my mum bringing people home. So I think all I'd say is that they have empathy. And empathy isn't pitying someone. It's just trying to put yourself in the person's shoes. And by the way, Sean, I'm no saint. I do get angry and I do get annoyed. And I have to pull myself up. And sometimes I think... I hear my dad's voice, who's a credibly patient and understanding person, and I hear my mum's voice going, you never know what that person's gone through. Connor Buckley, thank you for your time, thank you for your insights. Thanks so much, Sean. Lovely to meet you, and thank you for your time. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.